Good morning, everyone. The peace of the Lord be with you. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable unto you, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. The topic for this morning's Bible study is listening. Very ably begun by our moderator this last night. Thank you. In some ways, listening is a simple enough word or topic which we all understand and practice. I remember courses that I took and taught in active listening. You probably have some of that experience of well and may have taught the same courses, which were really helpful in developing close human relationships. And then when this topic was um, presented to me as something that I might like to do, it threw me in a bit of a tailspin, I have to say. And I began to think and read more deeply on the practice and experience of listening, particularly in the scriptures and in the Christian community, especially in its divine human dimension. And listening's role in the Christian community as we seek to live the way of Christ as redeemed people, nevertheless, being all too aware that we do live also broken and sinful lives, sometimes manifesting truly noble behavior, and at other times being hurtful to each other and straining the bonds of Christian friendship. So began for me a journey through scriptures, commentaries, and theological material, writing and reflection. So I selected two passages, would you believe? Exodus 3, 1 to 15, and Acts 9, 1 to 19. And I began to think about what are the marks of the listening church? So, that's where we will finish up in the next half hour, asking that question, what are the marks of the listening church? So I'm putting that out so you can begin to think that through. I want to tell you a story from my own experience, and I'm sure it will trigger for you memories of your own. A few months ago, I was really distressed about something in particular. It's irrespective of what it is, really. But I got myself into a huge twist, really anxious. It was destroying my sleep and my sense of well-being. And I was driving to work one day. I live in Ipswich. I was going to Chermside, so I had plenty of time to reflect. And I remember coming out of the tunnel onto Gympie Road, and I was so distraught, I yelled out. It was very unusual for me. God, what do you want from me? And a voice came back. 
trust me. Wow, like that's never happened to me before. It was like it was coming from outside of me. Did all my worries disappear at that instant? No, it didn't. But it was an experience to which I could return to remind myself of that lesson, which I desperately needed because it's not been easy for me to do that. So the next question I asked as I was reflecting on that experience, whose voice is it? Whose voice was speaking? We're tempting to say this is just a subjective projection of my own anxiety. Didn't feel like that. So how do we know what we know? Does God actually speak to us? In a variety of ways. So I go back to saying this. The scriptures and the tradition assert that Yahweh, the Lord of all, communicates with his people. We may have felt some of that this morning through the worship. As we gathered for the Eucharist, as we heard the story of some people from within our real uniting church. They cannot prescribe how God will speak to us or that he even will in any particular way. I suspect that most our listening is to a large extent partial and provisional. It's not like we can grab God and say, yay, this is God. God is so much beyond and bigger than all our listening and all our words. That's a needed corrective for us, I think. So I want to examine Moses and Saul or Paul just for a few minutes to see what we can learn from their experience. So, Moses. Exodus opened so powerfully with the Egyptians' attempted genocide of the Hebrew people. His narrative sounds remarkably contemporaneous. The refugees grow too numerous and too successful and the host country moves to get very anxious about all this and seeks to exterminate them. This is the context into which Moses is born. A context of high anxiety, uncertainty and cruelty. If we think about it for a bit and try and get inside that context, we will send something of how that will shape a child. His resourceful mother kept him hidden for three months and devised a plan to try to save his life. The first lesson is that we are interdependent on others in our lives. The two wid uh, midwives who referenced God 
Moses' unnamed mother, his sister, and Pharaoh's daughter and her servants all were agents of God's providential action. Challenging and not participating in Pharaoh's cruel decrees, an action of civil disobedience. This group of largely forgotten women had courage and fortitude. Listening is a risky business. Listening to the cries of other hearts, listening to the context in which we live, can be for us a really risky business. That doesn't constitute a reason for not doing what God calls us to do, of course. But we need to recognize that's tough. So Moses grows up and is being treated as Pharaoh's daughter. He lives a privileged life. I wonder if in modern terminology he suffered an identity crisis. Who am I? Hebrew? Egyptian? And perhaps an attempt to resolve and to identify with his people, he sets out, in the words of the Jerusalem Bible, he sets out at this time to visit his countrymen. And his best attempts end in tragedy and danger, and he flees to Midian, where he marries and has two sons. And again, the scriptures tell us, after a long time, I think the tradition has it that was 40 years, Something happens. What happened to Moses in those 40 years? Were they just kind of nothing? Isn't it interesting that we're 40 years old this year? We really, at this moment, are following the biblical tradition. So Moses, going about his ordinary business, sights a burning bush. What an intention getter. So my second question is, what manifestation or epiphany would grab our attention long enough to stop us in our tracks and have us turn away from our customary and habitual ways of responding to life and to each other? It's kind of scary in a way, I think. I think the voice of God as I was coming out of the tunnel grabbed my attention. So it's a good question to ask ourselves. What, as a community, as a Christian community, will grab our attention long enough for us to question, for us to find a direction, for us to find maybe a new path? So this divine human encounter results in Moses being commissioned as Yahweh's agent to deliver the people out of the hands of the Egyptians and bring them up out of that land to a land rich and broad, a land where milk and honey flows. Why Moses? Why the church? Why us? Why me? Who am I to go to Pharaoh and bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? I'm not eloquent. The people will not listen to us. 
We've lost our capacity to speak to the political and social and economic community. It's not about us. It's not about you, it's not about me. Yahweh says, I will be with you. That's the security. That is how we are held and thrust out. It was no easy journey taking on Pharaoh. The Israelites did not appear to be particularly grateful to Moses. They're cantankerous, complaining lot. Let's go back to Egypt. And in Moses' absence, they broke the covenant and made a golden calf. I wonder what that was about. I look at it this way. How we listen in the darkness or perceived absence of God is crucial to our growth, individual and community. It's a test of our maturity. It's so easy in those times of doubt, feeling that God is a million miles away, where we're kind of battling to find direction and light. For fear and anger and self-interest arise. Taking the future into our own hands or acting preemptively. Maybe our own version of the golden calf. So what does the real Uniting Church do in that context? What are the marks of a listening church in those moments of distraction, of difficulty, of darkness? And Moses, towards the end, or Exodus, we hear that God takes him and hides him. There's such intimacy there. Hmm. Let's move to Saul. I'm going to call him Saul because the scriptures do at this stage. And his change of direction, what's it teach us? You know, Saul has a fearsome reputation. He was not a meek and mild kind of person. The writer of Acts, which we'll call Luke at this stage, says this, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing threats to slaughter the Lord's disciples. Yow. That's a really strong statement. To slaughter the Lord's disciples, hatred and hostility on his heart. It could be interpreted to use that Luke is using the language of a wild and ferocious beast. A raging fury possessed him. And that's in Paul's own words. 
Have you ever thought what that was really about? On his way to Damascus to extradite believers back to Jerusalem in all self-righteousness and arrogance, Paul's attention is arrested by a bright light and a voice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That's a very personal form of address. I wondered why the voice said persecuting me and not why are you persecuting my followers? I don't know. Maybe, maybe the, the voice understood something about Paul's heart, the primary motivation, perhaps. But I wonder what Saul heard in that moment. See, Saul's life didn't begin just then. Saul comes to this experience as a person who is formed by a range of influences, as we all are. None of us are blank sheets of paper, ready to be written on as if for the first time. We are more like a bundle of papers that have been scribbled over repeatedly in different hands with frequent additions, notes, crossing out and revision. We bring all of that with us. It is in this person who enters into the listening process. That is who you are. If you want to use that analogy, it might not be helpful for you. A bundle of papers, scribbled on and over repeatedly. And that's how Paul came to this experience. That's how we come to the experience of synod. Hmm? That's what we've brought with us into this context. So back to Paul. No, hang on, I had another question. And it's this. What blocks our capacity, our ability, even our desire, or our openness to listen? either to God, to each other, or to ourselves. We could speculate, I suppose. That's not always terribly useful. But we could speculate and think maybe... maybe God had been trying to get Paul's attention for a long time. We don't know that. The text is as, in what it leaves out is just about as interesting as what it includes. But on this occasion, Paul's attention was grabbed. So question two then is, does the very fanaticism of Paul's persecutions betray his growing inner uneasiness? Luke doesn't include this, but later on in Acts, Paul 
uses this language. It is hard for you kicking like this against the goad. So, of course, I started to think, what on earth's a goad? After hearing those words for, you know, like forever. Feels like a hundred years, but it's not. <laughs> but what's a goad? Well, it's a stick that was used to prod animals to get them to go where you want them to go. But metaphorically, it's a thing that torments and incites or stimulates. So, I do say that we have particular goads in our experience that does those, that performs that function. It might torment us. It might incite us. Yow. It might stimulate us. And I think Paul was there saying something about his growing uneasiness about the path that he has chosen. And he came to that point where he could no longer kick against the goad that I suspect he's constructed in his head. Jung says this about fanaticism. Fanaticism is only found in individuals who are compensating secret doubts. He uh, might be right, he might not be, but it's a really interesting way to think about Paul. Was he compensating for the secret doubts that he had about his position, about Jesus, about his role in the history of the Hebrew people? Had he met Jesus? That's not impossible. I dare say he'd heard an awful lot about who Jesus was and his, his teachings and so on. So here he comes to this crisis moment and he changes. His blindness, a mark of dependence. Can you imagine it? This person full of self-righteousness, arrogance, is tossed to the ground. And he has to depend on people to lead him by the hand. And no food for three days. Yeah, that is really tough, I think. So he, there he is in that kind of liminal space. And who comes to him? Well, Ananias. Maybe we've all had an Ananias in our lives. He's come and drawn alongside us and not said, there, there, it's all going to be all right, but spoke the word of the Lord. I suspect Ananias was initially an unwilling agent of God's grace. Kind of challenged God a bit. Are you sure you've got this right? This man has been persecuting all your people. Was he anxious that what was being presented was a deception, a ruse, a strategy to collect a few more followers? It's a kind of suspicious stuff, I think. But we can be so grateful that Ananias took the risk 
went to Saul, not hard-heartedly. What did he say? Brother Saul. Brother Saul. I have a message for you, and your call is a call to testify and a call to suffer. Yeah, that is just incredible, isn't it? I think I'd run a mile if somebody came and said to me, you have a call to suffer. But I wonder if Paul could have been turned away at that point by a less than sympathetic, godly, spirit-inspired response. Do you know the story of Patrick White, the great Australian writer? He tells this. One night, he was taking some food to his dogs. Now, if you own a dog, you know how important it is to feed your pups. And the kennel was at the back of the property, and it was raining. And he was carrying all these plates, and he slipped in the mud and lay on his back, getting rained on, covered in dog food. That's a pretty exciting sign in some ways, huh? And he reflects and said to himself, as he began to laugh at the predicament that he was in, and the message of it was, you're only a man. And it put him in touch with the sense of the transcendent. So he and his partner, Manali, decided they would try and become part of the Christian community and attend worship at a local church. They struggled, of course, to feel some sense of connection, understand the language, the, the culture. And they kind of did all right until this Sunday when the minister preached on the sinfulness of counting marbles in a jar at the fate. Kind of the opposite of Ananias. Now look, we might laugh at that. In some ways, the ludicrousy of that, but it's a challenge because maybe we have our own versions of that particular approach. Okay. So, Paul then disappears out of the text for some time. He has a period out of the limelight. And he does not appear again until Barnabas goes and seeks him out. So those two amazing people, Ananias, Barnabas. Barnabas as the enabler, as the advocate, and in some ways as the protector. And Paul begins his ministry with a real earnestness in the life of the church in Antioch. So... I think that's an amazing story of speaking and listening. I hope there's something there for you personally and for us as a church. Okay. So what are the marks of a listening church? How can we draw out of what we've said so far? Oh, not so far because I'm not going to say anymore. But, um, 
but we'll keep it in our minds for the rest of our time together. What are the marks of a listening church? I suggest these. They're not definitive. Compassion. Compassion. I think as a country we're short of compassion. I work in prison ministry. And the community is very short on compassion of people who have broken the laws. Yeah. Does that mean we'll always agree with each other? Or that we become kind of so weak in some ways? No, of course it doesn't. Compassion's an incredibly active property where we are able to enter into robust conversation and yet not lose the sense that we care deeply about each other and that we listen deeply to each other. The second mark would be wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom and knowledge. As we explore together the history of our faith, the tradition that shaped, has shaped us. It's part of the bundle of papers that we've been written on. But we understand that there's a wisdom and a basis of knowledge that we can't find on Google. I think, I'm not a Google fan, who knows, it might be there. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> that we are forgiving We don't whitewash stuff. But in the spirit of Christ and in the love of Christ, we are able to enter into a process of forgiving each other and ourselves. We are trusting and we are enabling. Trusting a bit like Ananias. I'm getting a signal here to wrap it up. Thank you, Catherine. I am. And enabling like Barnabas. And lastly, that we learn to travel lightly. That we sit, e sit easily to things that aren't of the essence. And that we are resilient. Amen.